Well, I wonder what you think our church, our church, Crosspoint, is known for. What would you say our church is known for, reputation-wise, public understanding? What's the reputation of our church? Maybe an easier question to answer is, uh, what's the reputation of other churches in town? You know, if I were to give you a list of this or that, maybe you've got a friend who moves to town and you say, well, if you're going to look for churches, here's this church. By the way, they're kind of like this. If you go to this church, they're kind of like that. You might expect that. If you were to give a list of churches and ask to describe those, what would you say and what would you say about us? You'd probably list a lot of different Christian activities or, or and you would list maybe cultural personalities of those churches. They're like this. They do that. They do these kinds of things, or they're, they're kind of like these people. But what would our church be marked by? If you've been here for several months, you'll know that Jesus, in our going through the book of Matthew, has been preaching. And if you want to look at this kind of theologically, he's been what's called inaugurating what is known as the kingdom of heaven. Uh, what he calls the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like this or like that. The kingdom of heaven stresses this or it stresses that. And in our case today, the kingdom of heaven, uh, what Jesus will expose to us is that it is comprised of a certain type of faith, a certain type of belief. People within the kingdom of heaven have within them a certain type of A faith, a faith that isn't merely hands that obey God with what we do, but first, the kingdom of heaven is comprised of those who have a faith that is shown by a heart which has been changed by God. So I pray, frankly, that our church would be marked by holy hearts, that our church would be known for redeemed hearts, that our church would have the reputation of having renewed hearts or God-focused hearts or, or hearts that are awestruck of the grace and mercy of God. I said a quote last week from J.C. Ryle, but it's worth repeating even this morning. Uh, he puts it this way. He says, what is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience to obey from the heart? What is saving faith to believe with the heart? Where ought, to Christ, where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes of every one of us? My son, give me your heart. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you have it open to the book of Matthew in chapter 15. There we'll uh, go through the, the last 10 verses of verses 1 or verses 10 through 20 of chapter 15, where Jesus here, the, the setting here is that Jesus is confronted by scribes and, or scribes and Pharisees who are rebuking him. And so he, you could say, absorbs this rebuke from outsiders, even from this area, and then he explains something in particular to a crowd. And then after explaining something to the crowd, he then, in our passage, starts teaching his own disciples about a particular faith that his kingdom of heaven demands. So he takes the rebuke, He instructs everyone, but then he zooms in and focuses to his own disciples and says, the kingdom of heaven has faith like this, according to the scriptures that, amazingly, everyone would have already had access to. It's amazing as you see the book of Matthew unfold. What he he seems to be doing on a regular basis in his preaching is reminding people what they ought to have known and seen from the scriptures that so many of them would have already had. Now, the context of this 
obviously is a trap. Uh, the Pharisees have Jesus uh, in mind when they, when they seek him, when they go out to him, and it's almost like they, they lay a trap for him, kind of. His disciples didn't eat uh, with washing their hands according to the tradition. So the context here is that these Pharisees and scribes are trying to trap Jesus, saying, your people are not eating like they ought to, and here are our rules that say that they ought to eat in a certain way. And what we saw last week is that they take the Bible, they add to it certain traditions, but what they do is they actually tip the scales and they make the traditions more important. How are you operating as a Christian? Well, it's according to their traditions rather than God's scriptures. So the passage that I preached from last week showed that Jesus makes, a clear, makes it clear to the Pharisees in the crowd that what his view is when it comes to man-made religion. He discounts it. And he discounts it by not only saying that's not in the scriptures, but then later on he would point to himself as the actual fulfillment of what they should have been living by accordingly. Jesus points out here that the Pharisees were doing two things wrong. So if you're following along in the outline, you're going to see two points. And I just said two things. I'm not to point one yet. So even our intro has two points. Uh, It's going to be that kind of day. First, they added to God's commands. That's what the Pharisees were doing wrong. They were adding to God's commands. They were saying, this equally is like following the Lord. And by adding, they actually reject the purpose and the power of the word altogether. When you add to God's word in whatever way, whatever category, you actually take away from its power and fullness altogether. But also, secondly here, Jesus indicates that their intense focus, their stress on ceremony rituals, meaning their their external forms of holiness, led them to later neglect the things those rituals and ceremonies were pointing towards, moral holiness. That's what the ceremonial rites a passage where pointing the Israelites towards was needing a moral holiness done to them. But these people were caring more about external religion than internal belief. So that's what they were doing wrong. They were adding to God's word, but then they also weren't, weren't understanding or weren't getting what God's word intention was altogether. So throughout this confrontation, Jesus turns to the crowd in verses 10 through 11 and explains the kind of holiness that his kingdom would demand. It demands a heart holiness, a holiness that is from the inside out rather than from the outside in, a holiness that comes from the heart and then would impact every area of their lives, a godliness that flows from our innermost being, that that would then guide everything else. So if you're not new to, if you are new to Christianity, you're not used to the church, when we say heart, like a holiness that comes from the heart, we don't mean like the beating muscle inside your body, that organ there. We're talking about your innermost soul. What makes you really you? Your inner mind, your inner man, if you will. And what Jesus is saying, your inner soul, that has to be the root of holiness. You, you can't add anything else onto that, which we'll get into in a little bit. And this is the pressure point of Matthew 15 altogether, where Jesus demonstrating the rejection of the kingdom of heaven. Here, it's, been, or it's being rejected by men that think they're in, you think of it like visually, they think they're in by what their hands are doing. I'm doing all the right things. I'm crossing my T's, I'm dotting my I's. It's their culture. It's their custom that they think separates them in holiness rather than their heart. Now, what's our church known for? Well, for them, they thought it should be known for their keeping of man-made tradition. The Pharisees had a terrible effect, we'll see, on the holiness of God's people. 
They, they were not just passive people in the back. These were highly influential people in the religious section of this area. The Pharisees had a terrible effect on the holiness of the people. They wrongly taught the law, and it had an overarching emphasis on society altogether. They had a false view of sin and a false view of God, and it had an effect on other people. They had a self-centered view of holiness, and this had a devastating impact on people who would listen to them. So Jesus warns his disciples against this very point. Bad doctrine always leads to bad practice. Bad doctrine always leads to bad practice. We, we see this in another way coming to fruition in the book of 2 Peter. Why were these rulers so messed up? Why were they so demonic? Why were they so sexually in sin? They had a wrong understanding of God and what he said according to his word. And we'll get into the body of the sermon here in a second, but look for yourselves at verses 12 through 14. I'll read them to you. 12 through 14 of chapter 15, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into the pit. Now, with that understanding, you're going to see Jesus do two things through his instruction. One is a warning and one is a, another clarification. But I want you to understand the totality of this passage, verses 10 through 20. There is a warning about what to do when false doctrine about God comes your way. Even when that false doctrine is intended to or looks possibly very helpful. You know, these guys were making rules so that they could, in their minds, follow Jesus in a more holy manner. But what Jesus tells us is what to do about false doctrine, even if it looks helpful. But also, we're called from this passage of what to do with the scriptural truth about our own soul. So we're given two things, what to do with false doctrine and what to do with our false hearts, if you will. So there are two striking sayings by Jesus in this passage, verses 10 through 20. The first striking saying is his words about false doctrine, which will be point one, and the second are his words about the human heart, and both deserve our close attention today. So first, what I want you to see is what do we do with defiling or false teaching? What do we do with teaching that defiles? What do we do with teaching that is false? What do we do with teachers who are defiling through their confusion of the Scriptures? False or unbiblical, in, uh, in this case, or additional teaching and doctrine, what God's Word says, false teaching seeks to defile you from the outside in. False teaching seeks to defile you. Your heart being taught, taught false things is spiritually dangerous. And in fact, in many ways, it's deadly. And with respect to false doctrine, Jesus, our Lord, asserts and says that first, it is a duty for Christians to actively oppose false teaching, and second, false teachers should be rejected or forsaken. Look at verse 13. Again, Jesus answered them and said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. It's clear from going over or analyzing this passage as a whole, the disciples were surprised. <laughs> Think of it. The disciples were surprised at, about Jesus' strong language about the Pharisees and their traditions. Remember from last week who these Pharisees were in their status, in their nobility. You know, and he takes a harsh word towards them. They were shocked. The disciples were shocked to hear that the man they followed would be denouncing the Pharisees as 
hypocrites, using that language intentionally. Hypocrites, hypocrites, another word for hypocrites would be actor or an actress. The, the root word of, of hypocrite is a deceiver. So Jesus isn't saying, ah, they just kind of messed up a little bit. You know, they'll grow into it as they might listen to me more. He's saying, no, they are intentionally deceiving the hearts of those who will follow and listen to them. A person who professes beliefs and opinions that he or she does not hold in order to conceal their feelings or motives. That's what a hypocrite is. A person who professes beliefs, but doesn't actually hold to those real beliefs. Jesus here charges them openly to a crowd as sinners by their transgressing God's word, messing up God's word. The disciples then asked him, you know, the Pharisees were offended when they heard what you said. Jesus' charge to the disciples, this question. Now, we are indebted for our Lord's explanatory words, his answer to the disciples' questions. Did you not know that this would offend them or that this did offend them? Because these words are a declaration for us. What do we do with defiling teaching? What do we do with false teaching? That The plain meaning of our Lord's words are that false doctrine, like that of the Pharisees, is like a plant to which no mercy should be shown, because in the end, it will receive no mercy. False teachers and teaching is like a plant that Jesus says his heavenly Father did not plant and is a plant that will be rooted up. Now, for a lot of us, this is the season to do what in your yard? To actually get rid of everything that does not belong there. And that same imagery, when you root that up or use a shovel to get that out, or if you're like me, you got a blowtorch for Christmas and you are firing that thing off, right? That is the impending judgment that will have, that will be had on false teachers. And so Jesus says in the midst of this, reject them and go the other way. So I guess you could say that Jesus responds to the disciples about the offense with, I absolutely meant offense when I said those things about them. And I wanted everyone to hear it too. Whatever offense it may cause, false teaching about God is a defilement against God. It is no kindness or tolerance to spare it from being brought to light. Why? Because false doctrine is to be exposed. Because it is harmful to people. And it is offensive to God. It doesn't matter if those who are planted are in high office or went to certain schools, or in our culture, have a track record for being a a good pastor who leads an honorable church. If they contradict God's word, they should be opposed. They should be refuted. They should be rejected. His disciples must understand that it was right to resist all teaching that is unscriptural. Look at verse 14 of the passage. It says, let them alone. They're blind guides And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Let them alone. Or put another way, the context here, leave. Go away. Don't give them an audience. Don't buy a ticket to their show. This means you're to renounce and reject all instructors who persist in it. Sooner or later, they'll find their false doctrine will be completely overthrown and be put to shame. False doctrine will be completely overthrown. But where nothing will stand against the word of the Lord now as it will be at the end an announcement must be made. The usage of blindness here is actually pretty fascinating and pretty stark, if you think about it. Blindness, uh, in its context, we all know what it means to be blind. What it means to be blind is, is not so like, I have 
uh, very intense contacts because I am so blind. Brooke is the same way, though a little bit less blind than me. We kind of have a competition all the time going. Who has more negative numbers in our contact cases? But if I take my contacts out, I legally can't see, but I can rummage my way around. That's not the blindness that's talking about. Just, ah, we can figure our way through life. Blindness is truly, you can't see a thing. You are left to your own. And in the biblical context, when you think about how blindness is used, not only in the New Testament, but especially the blindness as a symbol in the Old Testament, you'll be uh, reminded of what it's, how it's written or used in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah uses the word blindness in the same way that you and I would use the word sin. So when, when Jesus came and announced and quoted from the book of Isaiah, and I think Luke 4, and said that, uh, or announced what was written in Isaiah that said someone will come and actually br- bring sight to the blind. He is not talking about opening up uh, a glasses hut, you know, at the mall. He's talking about those who were evil in their hearts are now going to be forgiven and receive sight that they can now have. There's an inability towards reality when you are blind. There's, a, there's an indication of debasement or shame, as Romans puts it. And so what he is saying is, they are blind. They are leading you. Do not follow them. Darkness will never lead itself to light. You cannot plant weeds around flowers and expect those flowers to flourish, nor those weeds to change. He's saying, get out. There are wise and deep lessons here in these verses for us, and they serve us even today. You might think, scribes, Pharisees, Ritual rules, cleaning, none of this has anything to do with me. You know, I read this a couple of weeks ago and I go, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. You might think this is not for us, but it certainly is. Think, think historically here. It, it, it was practical. It was the practical obedience to Scripture alone that was such an offense to the church in Rome 500 years ago. It was, it was a developing and glowing or developing and growing glow that set the world on fire when courageous men and women said, we just want what the scripture says and that alone. And here we have the first case of this as it broke away from rules and rituals. Now, lessons that it gives us ought deserve close attention. I've got, I've got three things that we can kind of take away from Jesus, not only rebuking scribes and Pharisees, but also turning and telling other people, let them alone. The first one is, do you see the boldness and duty a disciple of Christ has in resisting false teaching? No doubt you see this, right? The boldness and duty of a disciple of Christ has in resisting false teaching. No fear of causing offense, no dread of religious or churchly fellowship should make us hold our tongue when false teaching is being taught, when God's truth is being attacked. If we are true followers of Christ, we ought to be speaking with an unflinching character against air. Truth, says a theologian Wolfgang, must not be suppressed because men are wicked or cowards. Truth must not be suppressed if men are wicked or cowards. So do you see the boldness and duty a disciple of Christ has in resisting false teaching? Second, do you not see the duty of rejecting false teachers if false teaching will not give up their heirs? Do you not see the duty of false... Uh, do you not see the duty of rejecting false teachers if false teachers will not give up their heirs? No doubt you see that. No false charm, no fake humility should keep us from leaving the attention of any minister who contradicts God's word. It is at our danger 
if we submit to unscriptural teaching. Our blood will be on our own heads. As Jesus puts it in verse 14, they are blind guides. They will lead you into a, into a pit. And he is warning out of love for his disciples, his children, if you will. Don't listen. They will lead you to a pit. Third thing, do you not see the duty of internal patience when we see false teaching externally flourishing? Do you not see the duty of internal, your own here, your own internal patience when you see false teaching externally flourishing? We should take external comfort in the reality that false teaching will have, or we should take eternal comfort in the reality that false teaching will only have temporary success. God himself will finally and fully defend his own truth. Sooner or later, every heresy will be rooted up, the scripture says. You can see the parallel that Jesus has here from what Matthew demonstrated to us. You remember the the different kind of fields that you have, the four soils or the the field where he planted a certain kind and and Satan came in and planted other kinds and, and one will be plucked up and one will be used for his great harvest. Here, it's clear that Jesus is using the language that he's used before and Uh, parabolic form to say that evil will one day be rooted up. And so part of our response is to take care of ourselves, flee false teaching, but also know that that false teaching will have its day in court. We are not to fight with carnal weapons, J.C. Ryle says, but we are called to wait, to preach, and to pray in the midst of a garden that is being attacked from the outside. Now, here Jesus is demonstrating a spectacular portrayal of the kingdom of God in a quick parable. And that's really what verse 13 is in this passage. It's a, it's a parable for us to understand. Like any good gardener, Jesus here is portrayed as a gardener. He'll be careful to uproot weeds as well as to water plants. Our Lord's critical word operates by uprooting these Pharisees from their religious profession. You see that? The, the word of God on its own uproots these Pharisees by demonstrating They don't belong because of what they are saying. And he meant to do so. And what a warning for us. If if our religious walk is not holy of God, then it will become an end of destruction itself. No matter how far the flower appears, if the Father has not planted it, its doom is sealed. So what do you do with defiling teaching? Verse 14 is clear. Leave. Leave it. Well, when I was typing that, I was anticipating who's going to leave right now. You know, that's that, what if someone gets up? You know, oh, the wrong time to go to the restroom, isn't it? So anyway, so what do you do with defiling teaching? You leave. And part of this, part of this, we see, uh, this is uh, it's not my notes, but giddy up. All right, so part of this is our church is, so if you're here visiting and you're like, what makes our church different than other churches? Our church is, is controlled, if you will, or has author, absolute authority from all of the congregational members. So who has the ultimate authority of the kingdom of heaven in, the, in Cross Point particular church? The members of this church. And what is the calling of the members? If according to Galatians, I start teaching a false gospel or someone starts teaching a false gospel, well, the first one, according to our bylaws, is to fire me. The second one is to get someone else who will teach the good news to you. So the, the responsibility here, it is, it is our job as elders to almost go on the outside of the fence and keep wolves on the outside, or if we find a wolf in the middle, throw them out to the outside. But within the membership here, within our church, it is all of our responsibility to know the gospel in such a way that whenever it is uncarefully or unhelpfully or unbiblically proclaimed, then it is our responsibility to say, no, stop, 
and get out. So what do we do with defiling teaching? We leave. Second, what do we do now with defiling hearts? There's, there's a giant focus here that seems to be general. What do we do with false teaching? And then, it, and then it really drives into, it gets really personal really fast. What do we do with defiling hearts? The passage calls out, out to us. Uh, all of the drama is intended to continually circle around the real root issue with the Pharisees and the disciples. How many times did Jesus have to say in this one case that you are not defiled from what you put into you, but you are actually defiled from what comes out of you? And it's as if Peter was either not listening or he had heard it so many times from another Pharisee, but he says, explain to us this parable. And you can just imagine Jesus going, once again, you are not defiled from what you put into you, but what comes out of you here. But for us, we are thankful for the repetition which shows us the clear response that we are to have. Respecting the heart of man, Jesus announces within these verses that the heart, friends, your hearts here, all of your individual hearts, is the absolute source of sin and defilement. You are your worst enemy. You are your biggest problem. Now, by contrast, Pharisees taught that holiness depended on meat and drink. Now, for us, that seems so silly. How, how can you eat or drink in such a way that you would defile yourself? If they could exchange their bad circumstances for good or righteous circumstances, then things would be better. For our case, and in our culture today, we would never consider things like meats or drinks or bodily washings or purifications to ever defile us, but we would often look around and say, what's the worst thing going on in your life? We would say, well, this issue is causing me turmoil. This issue is causing me great pain. That issue really uprooted all of my joy and passion. Really, we keep putting things on exterior issues. Either, either they come and hold all of what man has, or they show that they come from within it instead of outside. If you go against the norm, in what these Pharisees would say and actually judge other people for. If you go against the norm, if you go against these rituals, if you go against our rules, if you go against, we could say contextually, what makes our church our church, then they would say, you're unclean, you're impure. Jesus overthrows this unscriptural doctrine by showing his disciples that the real fountain of all defilement is not outside of man, but from within. Look at verses 19 through 20 of the text, we're out of the heart. And this is, this is hard to understand because, because we often don't connect our heart to our mouth. Or we don't, often don't connect our heart to our actions. We, we accidentally will say something and go, oh, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say that. Let me, let me think about it. You are nice. Okay, I didn't mean to say what I just said there for a second. It's not really what's in me. And it's like, I think you just really revealed more about yourself than you would ever want us to understand. Look at verse 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. If you want to bring glory to God, if you want to serve God in righteousness, your heart's purity is far more the issue than bodily washings. That may bring purity to your stomach, but never your heart. This scripture's call is out to you and us, all of us, to have a clean heart. And you can, I think you can understand maybe the tension of uh, 
good, desiring religious people who are now living in fear because did I wash my hands close enough to to the meal? Did I walk down the wrong aisle of Walmart that made me impure? Do I, have, do I have the wrong set of friends that now make me evil? What if I sit in this section versus that section? What if I, what if I have this kind of vehicle or that kind of vehicle? What, what we constantly are looking around us and saying, if I do this right, am I rightly following the Lord? And he is saying, you are spending so much time on things that you actually can't control rather than worrying about the thing that actually defines you altogether, your own heart. We have a clear and awful picture here of human nature, of the human condition. These, these uh, what are there, eight, eight words here that describe us, eight or nine words that describe our heart. This is, this is doctrinally what is called uh, the doctrine of total depravity, that at our root, we are in great need. At our root, we can do nothing good for ourselves. And if you're drawn to by the one who knew what is a man, then here we have the condition of what a man really is. Gaze at this fearful catalog as a table of contents of your natural condition. Like, who here doesn't want a biography written about you in some way? Landed on the moon, saved someone from despair, was a good guy, on and on. But here, here's the real table of contents you left to yourself. This isn't a commentary by someone else on your heart after hearing Jesus. This is Jesus himself exposing what lies deep down within every one of us. So, what's our church like? Oh, man. (laughs) What's our church known for? Well, outside of Christ, this. This is who we are. Here we understand again the confrontation that the gospel has on any man's pride. What can the proud and self-righteous say when they read a passage like this? This is, this is no sketch, but a true and faithful account of the hearts of all mankind on their own. Now, our passage leaves us on the edge of our seat, though. <laughs> Jesus drops the mic here, if you will. There's a confrontation. There's a rebuke in response. There's a lesson for the crowd, and then there's a warning for the disciples. But the warning is for the disciples as much as it is for anyone else. Your heart determines your faith. And all of us, the the takeaway or the, the gut feeling of walking away from this is, what do we do now? If that's me, that's not good news. I think God grants us what we can ponder on well and learn from, from the rest of Scripture. Got, got three categories that I want to address here. First, for Christians. If you're here and you're a Christian, let it be settled for you to resolve that in all of your religious operation or religious practice or, or what makes you a Christian, let it, let it be settled, resolve that the state of our hearts to be the main concern of our fellowship and worship. When we gather for worship, When we gather for fellowship, are we aiming for the building up of our heart and the building up of others? If it's just external things, friends, that's fine. Baseball's great. Hanging out is fine. But if we're talking about Christian fellowship, Christian worship, if the aim isn't building up ourselves for the glory of God and seeking to build up others for the glory of God, that should be our aim. May we not be content to just go to church 
with a heart that isn't knowingly needing to exalt Christ with our redeemed hearts. May we not be content to live out holy practices by Christian ways while neglecting to point our hearts away from our flesh and toward the object of our faith. Another way that I could say it is, may we not be content to just do Christian things if we aren't pointing our hearts away from the flesh and toward the object of our faith, who is Christ. Let's look far deeper than this and desire to have, as Acts 8 says, have a heart right in the sight of God. So Christian, remind yourself of what a pure, righteous heart is. A right heart, a pure heart, is a heart that has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, renewed by the Holy Spirit, and purified by faith. Never rest till you find within yourself that witness of the Spirit that is calling out to you that you are forgiven because of your faith and repentance, that God has created in you a clean heart and made all things. And let that be, let that be the fuel for your faith. Second thing, Christians again. So the first one, let it be resolved in your own heart to exalt the heart and, your, and others as you fellowship and worship. The, the second one is for Christians again, have a settled desire to your heart with all of your diligence in all the days of your life, as Proverbs chapter 4 says. On this side of heaven, in the midst of a fallen world, our hearts can grow very weak. Our hearts can grow very tired. We can be very quick to be distracted from the world around us. Even after having put on the new man, the scriptures say we are still at the risk of a heart that can lie to us, for it's not fully glorified. It still needs the glow of the Holy Spirit, if you will. It still needs to, to look to the Spirit to guide us. And oftentimes, when we're idle spiritually, we're actually grieving the Spirit and are in danger of allowing harmful things creep back in. But never forget that our chief danger is always from within. And God has given us his, his clear plan, his clear will, his clear words, so that we can echo the words of Solomon, he that trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who trusts in the Lord will live forever. Now, the third thing here, this is for non-Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, for whatever reason, you came today or you knowingly came that you're not a believer. For non-Christians here, you will find that throughout the scriptures, there are rules and ways that are not intended to confuse you or trip you up. You might read the Old Testament and go, I don't know what to do with that. You might even read this passage and go, no idea what he's talking about with hand washing. These are not here to trip you up or to confuse you. These unique practices from the Old Testament of what Jesus is describing here, these, these unique practices from the Old Testament which are, which are fulfilled in Christ, meaning that he fully accomplished what those practices were rehearsing. These biblical practices are like good shadows of what in reality needs to happen. So when you read words like these people were to purify themselves before they were to go into worship, that reality has been fulfilled in the person of Christ, where in being renewed or remade by Christ, we now can go into worship him without any reservation at all because we've been made clean, not by our own doing, not because of what we've eaten, but because he has tasted death himself. Here's what I mean by that. Non-Christian, the scriptures are clear that you, in your state of not being a believer, has what is called a hard heart or a, or a dead heart. And you cannot have enough or, or abstain enough to actually purify it. You actually need what is called a heart transplant. 
The theologian Al Mohler puts it like this. Most people, and if you're a non-Christian, place yourself in this. Most people, most people believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is found within. They believe that they have an alien problem that is to be resolved with an inner solution. You know, you think about every time uh, I've taken a math exam, you look at a math problem, you've had a long semester of studying math, but you're looking at that problem, and you're going, if I look at it enough, I'm going to remember where in Sokotoa this exists. But I'm not. If I, if I close my eyes and turn a little bit to the left, I, I can't get it. I, I think that if I just think enough in my mind, then it'll come out. You, you actually don't have an outward problem with an inner solution. Al Mohler goes on to say, what the gospel says for you, non-believer, is that you have an inner problem that actually demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not your own. And the reality of the life of Christ is that this solution that is an alien uh, grace, we would say, is actually offered to you from the very person who is talking here in this passage. That Jesus came for such a reason to live perfectly, die sacrificially, be raised gloriously, and then offer himself to you at a satisfaction for all of the inward problem of your heart. You look at this list and you say, I am a murderer at heart. I am an adulterer at heart. I am a sexually immoral. I steal. I bear false witness. I slander. And what Jesus is saying, take, take all of those table of contents and let me rewrite all of your story with my hand that has been drained of blood. Right? That, the, the offering for you, non-Christian, is to see yourself for who you are, recognize that you cannot solve any problem that you have internally, spiritually, but to offer yourself completely to the one who fully can. What the gospel says is that you have an inner problem that demands an alien solution. And what the call of the scripture says is talked about in the book of Romans chapter 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You respond to this and go, I recognize that I have a heart that is unclean. What do I do with this? The call of the Lord says, confess your need of a Savior and believe in the very person of Jesus to forgive you and save you from your sins. That the theological terms are to know who Jesus is. Go to where Jesus is and trust in him completely with your life. Now for all of us in conclusion, if the Pharisees are religious but lack living faith, What then is true faith? True faith is not ethics or tradition. True faith is not religious practice or even good theology. True faith certainly has content that we must know. It affirms certain truths or facts about Jesus and our own human nature. That Jesus died for our sins and rose again for our justification, recognizing that we are sinners and capable of self-reform. True believers affirm those core ideas, but faith, faith is much more than that. Faith is much deeper than that. True believers have a heart for God or assent for who God is. It's here that the heart expresses itself, or as our passage applies, in loving words and deeds. But it's always more than words and deeds where Jesus uprooted the religion of Nicodemus so Nicodemus could have real faith. Jesus wants us to have the same done to us. And so, friends, let us run away from what is false. 
but not just aimlessly go. Let us run towards the one who has absolute truth, where his truth comes from his love towards his people. Let us turn to Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel and gives ourselves to him in true faith. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have guided us in such a way to see yourself for who you really are. We thank you for those of us who know you and believe in you, that you have granted us new life. Oh God, we thank you that you invaded us and exposed who we were and presented yourself as worthy. And God, we pray that we would continue to turn to you as our worthy lamb, who is a strong lion, who we put all of our trust in. We pray that you would shape us and hold us to this truth as a church, so that as we think about ourselves, we would be amazed at the work that you have done to our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.